Chapter 89 of Consuelo by George Sand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. As soon as Consuelo had sung her third air, Porpora, who knew the usual custom, made her a signal, rolled up his music, and retired with her through a little side door, without inconveniency by his exit those noble persons who had been pleased to open their ears to her divine accents. "'All goes well,' said he to her, rubbing his hands as soon as they were in the street, where Joseph stood ready to escort them with a lighted torch." Gaunitz is an old fool who understands how the land lies, and will push you on. And who is Kaunitz? I did not see him, said Consuelo. You did not see him, you stupid girl. He talked with you for more than an hour. But it cannot be that little gentleman in a rose and silver vest, who retailed so much gossip to me that I took him for an old box-opener? The very same. What is there surprising about that? "'It is very surprising to me,' replied Consuelo, "'and such was not the idea I had formed of a statesman. "'That is because you do not know how kingdoms are governed. "'If you did, you would consider it very surprising "'that statesmen should be anything else than old gossips. "'However, let us keep silence on that head "'and play our part in the masquerade of this world.' Alas, my dear master, said the young girl, who had gradually become pensive while crossing the vast esplanade of the rampart, in order to reach the suburb in which their modest dwelling was situated, I was asking myself just now what our profession will become in the midst of such a cold and deceitful world. And what do you wish it should become? returned Popora in his rough and abrupt manner. It is not to become this or that, happy or unhappy, triumphant or despised, it will ever remain the most fascinating as well as the noblest vocation on the earth. Oh, yes, said Consuelo, taking the maestro's arm and causing him to moderate his rapid strides. I understand that the grandeur and dignity of our art cannot be raised or lowered by the frivolous caprice or bad taste which governs the world. But why should we allow our persons to be debased? Why should we expose ourselves to the contempt, sometimes even to the more humiliating encouragements of the profane? If art be sacred, are not we also sacred, we who are her priests and her Levites? Why do we not live retired in our garrets, happy in feeling and comprehending the beauty of music? And what business have we in those saloons where they whisper together during our performance, applaud us absently and unmeaningly, and would blush to retain us a moment, and treat us like fellow-creatures, after we have done exhibiting like actors? Ha! growled Porpora, stopping abruptly and striking his cane on the pavement. What foolish vanities and what false ideas are coursing through your brain today? What are we, and what need we be but actors? They call us so in contempt. And what matters it if we be actors, by taste, by vocation, or by the choice of heaven, as they are great lords, by chance, by constraint, or by the suffrages of fools? Ha! Ha! Actors? All cannot be so who wish it. Let them try to be actors, and we shall see what a figure they make. Those minions who think themselves so fine, let the dowager Marguerite of Bareth put on the tragic mantle, case her huge misshapen leg in the buskin, and make three steps across the stage, and we shall see a strange princess. 
And what do you think she did at her little court of Erlangen when she thought she reigned there? She tried to dress herself like a queen and moved heaven and earth to play a part above her powers. Nature intended her for a subtler, and destiny, by a strange mistake, has made her a highness. Therefore she deserved a thousand hisses when she preposterously undertook the part. And you, foolish child that you are, a god made you a queen. He has placed upon your brow a diadem of beauty, intelligence, and power. Carry you into the midst of a free, intelligent, and sensible people, supposing that such exist, and you would be at once a queen because you have only to show yourself and sing in order to prove that you are queen by divine right. Well, it is not so. The world is constituted otherwise, but being as it is, what do you wish to do with it? Chance, caprice, error, and folly govern it. What change can we make in it? Its rulers are for the most part counterfeit, slovenly, foolish, and ignorant. Thus are we placed. We must either die or accommodate ourselves to its ways. And as we cannot be monarchs, we are artists and have a kingdom of our own. We sing a heavenly language which is forbidden to vulgar mortals. We dress ourselves as kings and great men. We ascend the stage. We seat ourselves upon a fictitious throne. We play a farce. We are actors. Santo, the world sees us but understands us not. It does not see that we are the true powers of the earth, and that our reign is the only true one, while their reign, their power, their activity, their majesty is a parody at which the angels weep, and which the people hate and curse. And the greatest princes of the earth come to look at us and take lessons in our school, and admiring us in their own hearts as models of true greatness, they strive to resemble us when they exhibit themselves before their subjects. Go to, the world is turned topsy-turvy, and they know it well, they who govern it. And although they themselves may not be aware of it, although they may not confess it openly, it is easy to see from the contempt they display for our persons and our vocation that they feel an instinctive jealousy of our real superiority. Uh, it is only when I am at the theater that I see clearly our true relations to society. The spirit of music unseals my eyes, and I see behind the footlights a true court, real heroes, lofty inspirations, while the miserable idiots who flaunt in the boxes upon velvet couches are the real actors. In truth, the world is comedy, and that is the reason I said to you just now, my noble daughter, to play our parts in it, with gravity and decorum, although conscious of the hollow pageant which surrounds us on every side. Plague take the blockhead! cried the maestro, pushing Joseph from him, who, greedy to hear his glowing words, had insensibly approached, so as at last even to elbow him. He treads on my toes and covers me with pitch from his torch. Would you not imagine that he understood what we are talking about and wishes to honor us with his approbation? Cross over to my right, Peppo, said the young girl, making a sign of intelligence. You annoy the maestro with your awkwardness. Then addressing Porpora, All that you have said, my dear friend, resumed she, though noble and inspiring, is shadowy and unreal. Moreover, it does not answer what I have urged, for the intoxication of gratified pride cannot afford a balm to the wounded heart. Little matters it to me that I am born a queen, and yet do not reign. The more I see of the great, the more does their lot inspire me with compassion. Well, is that not what I said? 
Yes, but that is not what I asked you. They are greedy of show and power, that is at once their folly and misery. But we, if we be greater and better and wiser than they, why do we strive with them? Pride against pride, royalty against royalty. If we possess more solid advantages, if we enjoy more precious and desirable treasures, what means this petty struggle in which we engage with them, and which, subjecting our worth and our strength to the mercy of their caprices, reduces us to their own level? The dignity, the holiness of art require it, cried the maestro. They have made the world a battleground, and our life a martyrdom. We must fight, we must shed our blood at every pore, to prove to them, even when dying of misery, even when sinking under their hisses and contempt, that we are as demigods compared with them, that we are legitimate sovereigns, while they are vile mortals, mean and shameless usurpers. Oh, my master, replied Consuelo, shuddering with surprise and terror, how you hate them, and yet you bend low before them, you flatter them, you speak them fair, and you take your leave by a side door after having served up to them two or three courses of your genius. Yes, yes, replied the maestro, rubbing his hands with a sardonic smile. I mock them, I pay my court to their diamonds and crosses, overwhelm them with a few airs after my fashion, and turn my back upon them, well pleased to effect my escape and rid myself of their foolish faces. Then, replied Consuelo, art is a combat? It is, even so. Honor to the brave. It is a sarcasm on fools? Yes, it is a sarcasm. Honor to him who can make it deep and withering. It is a perpetual war, a war to the knife. Yes, it is a war. Honor to the man whose arm is not weary, and whose anger pardons not. And it is nothing more? It is nothing more in this life. The glory and the crown are for another world. It is nothing more in this life, maestro? Are you very sure? Have I not told you? In that case, it is indeed little, replied Consuelo, sighing and raising her eyes to the serene and starlit heavens. Do you call that little? Do you dare to say so, you weak and fainting heart? exclaimed Porpora, stopping afresh and angrily shaking his pupil's arm, while the terrified Joseph let fall his torch. Yes, I repeat it. It is a paltry and worthless aim, she replied calmly and firmly. And I told you so once before at Venice, on that melancholy and fatal occasion which has tinged my whole afterlife with its sombre hue. I have not changed my opinion. My heart is not made for such a struggle, and it cannot support the double weight of hatred and anger. There is not a corner in my bosom where rancor and vengeance can find a resting place. Far from me all evil passions, far from me all feverish excitements. If, as the sole condition of my possessing genius and glory, I must yield up my bosom to you, adieu, genius and glory, forever adieu, crown other brows with laurels, melt other hearts with your wondrous magic, you shall never extort a sigh of regret from me. Joseph expected to see Porpora burst into one of those terrific yet ludicrous fits of anger which prolonged contradiction was apt to awaken in him and he had already seized Consuelo's arm in order to snatch her from the maestro's side and protect her from those furious gestures with which he often threatened her, but which led to no other result than a smile or a tear. And thus it was on the present occasion. Poporo stamped on the ground, 
growled hoarsely like a caged lion, clasped her hand, and raised it vehemently toward heaven. But immediately afterward he let his arms fall by his side, uttered a deep sigh, and preserved an obstinate silence until they reached home. Consuelo's generous and unshaken mildness, energy, and uprightness had inspired him with involuntary respect. Possibly he reproached himself bitterly in secret, but if so, he did not allow it to appear, for he was too old, too hardened and bitter to amend. Nevertheless, when Consuelo approached to bid him good night, he looked at her with a melancholy air and said in a subdued voice, And is it indeed so? You are no longer an artist because the Margravine is an old coquette and Kaunitz an old gossip. No, my dear master, I did not say so, replied Consuelo gaily. I did not say so. I can submit cheerfully to the folly and impertinence of the world. I do not require either hatred or anger to induce me to do so, but only a good conscience and good humor. I am still an artist and shall always be an artist, but I conceive a different aim. I shadow out a different destiny for art than the rivalries of pride and the vengeance of humiliation. I have another spring of action, and it will sustain me. What spring? What motive? exclaimed Porpora, placing the light which Joseph had brought on the table of the antechamber. I would make art loved and understood without making the artist himself either feared or hated. Porpora shrugged his shoulders. Dreams of youth, said he. I had the same dreams once myself. Well, if they be dreams, replied Consuelo, the triumphs of pride are dreams also. Dream for dream, I like mine best. And then I have another motive, my dear master, the desire of pleasing and obeying you. I do not believe it. I do not believe a word of it, exclaimed Popora, snatching up the light and turning toward the door. But ere he had seized the handle, he returned to embrace Consuelo, who waited with smiles this reaction of feeling. From the kitchen, which adjoined Consuelo's chamber, there ascended a little stair which led to a sort of terrace some six feet square on the roof. It was here that she dried Poporo's bands and ruffles when she had done them up. It was here that she sometimes climbed to have a chat with Beppo, when the maestro retired to rest too soon or earlier than she felt any inclination to sleep. Unable to remain in her own room, which was too low and narrow to admit a table, and fearing to rouse her old friend by occupying the antechamber, she mounted to the terrace, sometimes to indulge in lonely reverie and gaze upon the heavens, sometimes to relate to her devoted companion the little incidents of the day. This evening they had a thousand things to say to each other. Consuelo wrapped herself in a pelis, the hood of which she pulled over her head in order to avoid taking cold, and hastened to rejoin Beppo, who awaited her with impatience. These nocturnal conversations reminded her of her meetings with Anzoletto when both were children. But it was no longer the full and cloudless moon of Venice which looked down upon them with her serene smile, no longer its fantastic and picturesque roofs which called such a throng of images, nor its nights glowing with love and hope. It was the cold and shadowy night of a German land, the dim and vapor-shrouded moon of a northern clime, and the sweet and healthful pleasure of friendship without the dangerous intoxication of passion. 
When Consuelo had mentioned all that had amused, annoyed, or interested her at the Margravines, it was Joseph's turn to speak. "'You have seen the secrets of the court,' said he, "'the envelopes and armorial bearing, as it were, but as lackeys are accustomed to read their master's letters, it is in the antechamber that I have learned the hidden life of the great.' I shall not tell you half the remarks of which the Margravine was the subject. <laughs> oh, if great people only knew how their valets speak of them, if in these gorgeous saloons where they parade themselves with so much dignity they could hear what was said on the other side of the wall of their manners and characters, while Porpora just now on the rampart set forth his theory of strife and hatred against the lords of the earth, his was not the true standard of dignity. His bitterness perverted his judgment. Ah, you were in the right when you said that he reduced himself to their level in seeking to crush them with his contempt. Had he heard the conversation of the valets in the antechamber, he would have seen that pride and contempt of others are the characteristics of base and perverse minds. Thus Porpora evinced grandeur, originality, and power of mind just now, when he struck the pavement with his cane and uttered as his war-cry, Courage, strife, bitter irony, eternal vengeance. But your wisdom was lovelier than his frenzy, and I was the more struck with it that I had just seen the tribe of domestics, timid victims, demoralized slaves, who also whispered in my ears with accents not loud yet deep, Trickery, perfidy, eternal vengeance and hate toward our masters, who believe themselves our superiors, and whose baseness we betray. I have never been a lackey, Consuelo, but since I have become one in the same manner as you became a boy during our journey, I have reflected, as you may see, on the duties of my present situation. You have done well, Beppo, replied Porporina. Life is a great enigma, and we ought not to overlook the slightest fact without commenting and reflecting upon it. It is always so much discovered. But tell me, did you learn anything from the household about this princess, the daughter of the Margravine, who of all these starched, painted, and frivolous puppets seemed to me alone natural, amiable, and serious? Oh, yes, not merely this evening, but often from Keller, who waits upon her governess and is well acquainted with the facts. What I am going to tell you, therefore, is not a story of the antechambers, a lackey's tale. It is a true story of public notoriety. The Princess of Kulmbach was educated at Dresden by the Queen of Poland, her aunt, and it was there that Porpora knew her and gave her, as well as the Grand Dauphiness of France, her cousin, some lessons in music. The young Princess of Kulmbach was as beautiful as she was prudent. Brought up by a severe and exacting queen, far from a depraved mother, she seemed destined to be honoured and happy through life. But the dowager Margravine, the present Countess Hoditz, would not have it so. She brought her home, and kept her with her under pretense of marrying her, now to one of her relatives, also a Margrave of Bereith, now to another, also Prince of Kolmbach. For the principality of Bereth Kombach reckons more princes and margraves than it has villages and castles to belong to them. 
The beauty and modesty of the princess aroused in her mother's breast a violent feeling of jealousy. She burned to disgrace her, and for this purpose fabricated the most atrocious slanders against her, and by her representations to the other members of the family caused her to be imprisoned in the fortress of Pleasenburg, where she passed several years in the most rigorous captivity. She would have been there still, had she not been induced by the promise of the Empress Amelia's protection to abjure the Lutheran faith. She yielded, however, solely from her ardent wish to recover her liberty, and the first use she made of it was to return to the religion of her ancestors. The young Margravine of Bereth, Wilhelmina of Prussia, received her with kindness in her little court. She was beloved and respected there for her virtues, her mildness, and the correctness of her demeanor. If broken-hearted, she is still an admirable creature, and although she is not in favor at the court of Vienna on account of her Lutheranism, no one ventures to insult her. No one, not even the lackeys, dares to utter the least slander against her. She is here on some business at present, but she usually resides at Berith. "'That is the reason,' replied Consuelo, "'why she spoke so much of that country and wished me to go there. "'Oh!' What a history, Joseph, and what a woman that Countess Hoditz is! Never, no, never shall Porpora drag me to her house again. Never shall I sing for her more. Nevertheless, you would meet there the best and most estimable women at court. Such, they say, is the world. Rank and wealth cloak every vice, and provided you go to church, everything else is tolerated. This court of Vienna would seem somewhat hypocritical, said Consuelo. I fear between ourselves, replied Joseph, lowering his voice, that the great Maria Teresa is somewhat of a hypocrite herself. End of chapter 89